Thank you very much. How's it going? Yeah, all right. Uh, my name's Nathan Hiltz, and uh, welcome to the Jazz Bistro. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, tonight, we're doing a uh, podcast recording. Uh, the show's called The Body Electric, and uh, basically, it's an interview with jazz musicians. I, I mostly do uh, guitar players, but occasionally, I get the chance to do it with a horn player. And tonight, uh, we've got a pretty good horn player for you to hear. Uh, <laughs> His name's Pat LaBarbera, and he's played with pretty much everybody. And he's going to come up and uh, have a chat with me now. So please give a round of applause for Pat LaBarbera. <laughs> so th this is the very first time that this has been done live in front of uh, people. Uh, usually it's in my living room or the artist's living room. Uh, but, uh, you know, so I'm really glad to have you here. And at some point, uh, I I'd love to get a couple questions from you guys. Uh, we're also being live streamed on the internet, and uh, we'll probably get some questions from there too. Um, but uh, I thought we might just start by playing a tune for you so you can get a, a sense of what uh, this is going to sound like. Um, what are we going to do, Pat? We're going to do uh, You Stepped Out of a Dream. All right. <laughs> Thank you. 
Beautiful, beautiful. Sounding great, Pat. Well, getting started. <laughs> 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 yeah, well, thanks for coming down tonight. It's really a uh, pleasure to have you on this. Yeah, it's been a while. Oh, I don't, we haven't played in... <laughs> it's been a while. I can't even remember what it was. It was like a, class. We no. were both sidemen, I right, think, like on the, the couple yeah. times that we've done that. That's great. Cool. So, how's music? Music for me has been great. I've been, yeah? Yeah, yeah? We're still I'm involved in teaching at Humber College, of course, and a little bit of traveling here and there and playing throughout you know, North America, usually Toronto mostly, but other cities also. Cool, cool. Well, well the first thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, I just wanted to, you know, you grew up in a very musical household, right? And, yes, uh, I did, yeah. You know, so uh, I was just wondering if maybe you would talk a little bit about how you got into playing uh, music. Well, it was forced into it, basically. Uh, oh, really? Well, yeah. My father was a musician, and there were—he was a teacher, and, and you know, as a as a second uh, sideline, he was really an engineer. But he had bands, and so he had bands that worked. And I saw musicians coming and going. And then when we were all old enough, he basically gave us, told us to pick an instrument. We all picked instruments, and we started taking lessons from him. And then we started working as I started working with his bands. So I started playing in 1952, 53, and by oh. 1954, yeah, by 53, 54, I was working in his band. So I think I was eight, no, ten, maybe eight or nine, somewhere in there. Wow, I started working wow. Anyway. What part of the world is this? Uh, south of uh, Rochester, New York. I grew up in um, a town called Mount Morris, New York. Right, right. Cool. And uh, so your first gigs with your dad's band, what, what kind of music was well, that? Well, you that had jazz? to figure the 50s, right? So the 50s, it was pop music of the day. We grew up in a Sicilian household, so there was a lot of uh, ethnic music. The town was mostly uh, Italian and Irish, so we played uh, St. Patrick's Day tunes, and then and, and we played uh, Italian tunes. Right, right. So I can still sing McNamara's band and all of those tunes and all the <laughs> lyrics, and then I can play the Sicilian mazurkas and what have you too. So it was just, and plus the pop tunes of the day. You have to remember what nineteen. Well, you don't remember. Most people wouldn't. But <laughs> 19, the pop tunes in nineteen fifty were mostly some of the standards that we play today. It was a lot of country music where I grew up. So. Um, we played some country tunes too, and, and you knew all the lyrics too, right? I most of the that tunes I knew. I don't know. I've always been good with lyrics most of the times, yeah. But never sang. Uh, I sang, but not good enough to be heard. <laughs> right, right. That's cool. Yeah. And so, uh, when did you know? When did you start getting interested in improvisation? It wasn't until I went to high school. My high school music teacher really got me into jazz because he started playing. He had a record collection. He started introducing me to people I'd never heard. You know, up until that time, my jazz was basically big swing bands, Glenn Miller, Artie Shaw, Dixieland at the time, and, uh, you know, the, the, the people of, the, of that era, uh, you know, Sinatra, those things. But when I got to high school, he had Jerry Mulligan, Stan Getz, Charlie Parker, and so he started introducing me to, uh, to that music through his record collection, which he brought to school, and then, then I was hooked. Once I heard that music, I started saving my lunch money to buy records. 
Right. My brothers, I roped my brothers into becoming players. They, I forced them all to, to learn how to play jazz. My brother Joe was a drummer. My brother John played piano and trumpet. Mm-hmm. And they're still, they're both professional musicians today. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's cool. And uh, so uh, in those early years, uh, like, were you studying with uh, saxophone players? Or was my, it really no, this I only practical? Studied, I, just pl- I just learned with my father, basically what I did. And basically I learned everything by ear off recordings. I mean, I could read. But there was no, there was no education. And you know, talking about 19, well, you have to say 58, 59, very, very limited. Berkeley was going. That was about the only place. Maybe North Texas, but there were no books. Basically, the only books we had were transcriptions, solos of, of swing players, and you read the solos. And I had a book by Frankie Trombauer, who was, you know, a saxophone player from the 30s who influenced Lester Young and saw how he played on chords, so you figured out what the chords were and you figured out how to play up and down on the chords and make melodies, and you basically just listened. Right. Or you read Downbeat Magazine, which was a real influence to us uh, also because it was in our school library when I was in high school. We got Downbeat, so we got a chance to see what was going on in the outside world in a small town of 4,000 people. Mm. Not many people were into jazz. Mm, it's different now, eh? Well, yeah, yeah, education. I mean, when I went to, p- to school, they didn't... Uh, you couldn't play jazz in, on the campus. Uh, you couldn't uh, have the big band couldn't meet on campus. <clears throat> Some of the schools wouldn't allow you to practice jazz in the practice rooms. Other schools, would, they would throw you out of school if they even found out you were playing outside of school, playing jazz on weekends. Really? Oh, yeah. So, like, uh, so you're well, talking Eastman about schools school. with an actual music program, and because if you're playing jazz, they're not... Thrown out of school. Really? Yeah. Yeah, well, I know I don't. I won't tell his story, but Chuck Mangione tells a story about being caught playing jazz outside of Eastman, and they threatened to throw him out of Eastman School of Music. Now, don't poor people in Eastman. Now, Eastman has one of the best jazz programs in the country. Yeah, and the place I went to also has. I mean, all these schools now have jazz programs, but in the '60s they didn't. Right, right. And some of the schools like Ithaca had no practicing of jazz in the practice rooms on little plaques. That's hilarious. That's crazy. Uh, so it was kind of rebellious. Uh, yeah, it's all changed now. It's all different. Right. Every school has a, every major, every college has some kind of a jazz program or, you know, a, a secondary band of some kind. Yeah. Mm. So um, and then pretty early on, you started playing with uh, Buddy Rich. Well, yeah, I played with Buddy Rich after I went to Berkeley School of Music. I, right. played, I went to Berkeley for about three years, and then I got the call. One of my teachers got me the job with Buddy Rich. Wow. Uh, he was out on the road with Buddy Rich. He had come back to teach in the fall, and uh, I started the fall semester my fourth year, and he said, uh, you've been in school too long. I th- he said, you should go out on the road. And he said, I know there's a job with Buddy Rich. I'll get you the job. That was a Friday night. By Monday, I had to quit school and go to New York and join Buddy's band. So that was 1967, yeah. Wild. Yes. Wild. So you dropped out of school just before... Just my fourth year. I went right. back 30 years later to finish. Oh, good yeah. for you. I did. I had to. Yeah. I owed it to my father because he had helped uh, tremendously, uh, you know, <laughs> getting loans back then. My, fa- my father, t- you know, it, it, it was hard to get a month. Berkeley cost at that time $1,000 a year. I think it was $500 a semester. It was a lot of money. That's for a lot of money back then. When you st- and then when you want to send three kids to the school, I know my father couldn't get them. The bank wouldn't even give him the loan. He had to go to the mob to get a, to get a loan. He went to a loan shark to get the money to go to school, which he paid back. Wild. So, uh, so both your brothers went to uh, Berkeley as well. Yes, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, at that time, were you guys playing together? Yeah, we had family bands and we played. Yeah. We worked together, and then they went off to different schools. And then we met up at Berkeley, and then I went on the road. Then I got my brother John on the road. My brother Joe came out. Also, he was um, traveling with a singer named Frankie Randall. 
Mm. We were all in Las Vegas playing at the Sands together at one time. Uh, mm. All three of us in, in Buddy Rich's band because Joe played Buddy Rich's drums when we backed Frankie Randall. He would play in the band. So we were all three on the bandstand at the same time. And then they went off to different places. My brother went with... Uh, uh, Joe went in the army. John went with uh, the Glenn Miller band. I stayed with Buddy's band for almost seven years. Wow, wow. So um, w at that, t can you remember at that time, like after you left university, what kind of things were you working on? Like was it mainly being a section player or were well, you... Well, that was something that we got in school. So, I mean, that really helped me. The training that I got in Berkeley helped me to, p to play in a professional road band. Knowing other people in the band really helped because Ernie Watts was a saxophone player who was playing lead alto and Ernie and I were in the same combo in Berkeley, but he went out on the road a couple of months later with uh, Buddy Rich's band. Then I came on and then early, Ernie helped you know, all of us uh, kind of put the, uh, the saxophone section together. But it, it helped a lot from what I learned in Berkeley. Mm. Being able to double flute, clarinet, and play the saxophone all happened when I was in Berkeley, although I played clarinet as a, as a youngster. Right, right, uh, and uh, traveling with that band must have been pretty cool. Like, were you guys on? Yeah, a bus? the very. I mean, the, I joined him in 1967. <coughs> yeah, I got on a plane, flew to Milwaukee, and the first night we played with Frank Sinatra. It was a, it was a, uh, oh my gosh. a, a birthday party for Vice President uh, or for Hubert Humphrey at the time, and uh, we did a big bash with Nancy Sinatra and the Fifth Dimension and Milton Berle and all these movie stars were there to help. It was kind of a democratic fundraiser also, Nancy Sinatra. And that was the first night. And then we traveled, and then the next month I was in Japan for a month, Hong Kong, Taipei, uh, through, the, through the Far East, and then back, back to the Hollywood to do uh, recordings and then working locations, Las Vegas, Wow, so you just, you mustn't have traveled that much before that. Never. <laughs> I hadn't been on a plane until I went with Buddy Rich's band. <laughs> wow. I had to fly from Berkeley to go back to Rochester to get my stuff to fly to New York. I'd never been on an airplane. And I was, what, 20, was that 64, uh, 67? I was 20, oh, <laughs> 23, I think. I'd never been on an airplane. Wow. So would you say that the big <laughs> band was, you, you know, like, uh, I often think, like, oh, it's too bad that the big bands aren't happening anymore because that was a... Uh, you know, really yeah, cool, it a, fertile it a, ground. It was a learn, great right? training ground. When I was coming up at the time, I was just at the tail end of it. So all the bands were out with young guys my age. Uh, Stan Kenton, Maynard Ferguson, even Basie's band had some of the younger guys in it. Ellington's band had his usual guys that he had. A few younger guys, but there were th those bands. There was also bands like Cy Zentner, uh, other uh, dance bands that were around traveling. And so there was a lot of opportunities. And the Glenn Miller Ghost Band, you know, Ghost Band is something where you keep the name of the leader. Like Glenn Miller had been dead for years, but the band remained with different leaders, Buddy DeFranco, Peanuts Hucko. And those bands were out working. Right. Yeah. Would you call it a supportive environment? Because I, I know, you know, I teach at Humber as well, and, uh, you know, there's a real, it, it seems really important nowadays to be supportive of everyone and not necessarily hard on anyone. And uh, I'm just wondering if these big bands were, were they, were, would you say that it was supportive? Yeah, no, I think everything, I mean, Buddy was very supportive to all the players. I mean, it was one of the, probably the best paying bands out there when you, when you figure out some of the other jobs. Plus it was e easier work. Most of the bands were doing one-nighters. So you'd do two to 300 one-nighters all across America. I got the call to go at Woody Herman's band around the same time, but I chose Buddy's band because he would do locations. We'd do a month at Caesar's Palace, right? Then we'd go to New York, and we'd do two or three weeks at the uh, place in the Empire State Building. I'll think of it in a minute anyway. And then you'd do two weeks in another club. And then you'd 
you travel to England, you do a command performance for the Queen, and you do all of these, you know, very, very prestigious gigs. Then you do the Tonight Show. Wow, wow. Yeah. Craft Music Theater, Craft Music Hall with Bobby Darren. Then you do Ed Sullivan. You do all these shows with Buddy, because Buddy was really at the top of, you know, uh, of the big band food chain at that time, and commercially also. Mm. You know, he was always seen on television. Wow. My favorite, Buddy Rich, is when he was on uh, Sesame Street. Oh, yeah, with, yeah. An, with Animal? Yeah. yeah, that was really great. <laughs> yeah, how Animal finishes him by throwing a drum on his head. I thought that was cool. Um, okay, well, I feel like, uh, do you want to play another tune? Sure, yeah. Let's, yeah. Play, let's play a ballad of some kind. Yeah? You want to do Old Folks? Sure, let's play this one for me. Old and folks. Uh, <laughs> just before we do that, I might mention to uh, those people that are listening online, hi over there, uh, that if you have any questions, feel free to type them into the uh, live stream that we have, and uh, we'll do our best to answer those questions for you. Okay. All right? Great. Thank you. 
Beautiful, man. Beautiful. You have a, a special connection with ballads, don't you? Yeah, I like, <laughs> as you get older, that's all you want to play, really. <laughs> <laughs> ballads. Yeah. Yeah, I love, I love it. I, I've always admired uh, the way Coltrane played them, but of course all the other players that I admired, like you know Colin Hawkins and uh, Lester Young especially, was one of my big heroes when I was growing up. Stan Getz, too. Mm. Uh, Would you say you're a, a saxophone-focused kind of saxophonist? Well, I mean, I spent a lot of time listening to saxophone. I, I, I also like, I mean, there's other instruments that I, that I like to listen to also. I have a whole thing of piano trios on my phone where I, you know, just different trios, especially Bill Evans' trio, Bud Powell. Uh, I love listening to trios. I, I, I just like everything. I mean, I, I listen to, mostly I just listen to all the jazz that there is. If I can find it, I, I listen to it and try to you know, understand what's going on. Amazing, yeah. And uh, so when did you first become aware of John Coltrane? Well, Coltrane was uh, in high, in basically in high school. I remember uh, uh, listening to Miles Davis's album, Someday My Prince Will Come, and uh, that was one of the big influences. And then, of course, with Giant Steps came out, I remember going into a record store. I used to be able to go into record stores, and I went into one. It was a friend of mine and named Max Good, and he used to, every time I'd go into Rochester, he would say, you got to check this one out. And they'd give you the record, and you'd go into a booth, and you'd put it on, and you'd, you could sample the record to see if you wanted to buy it. And I remembered going into Rochester, putting on Giant Steps, and wow, man, I, said, I, don't know. I didn't know what it was, but I said, I got to hear this. So I, I bought, the, bought the recording. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he came to Rochester, so we used to be, I used to go see him live. And then when I went to Berkeley, he came to, to, to Boston to the Jazz Workshop. You know, about every four, four months, he was basically at the Jazz Workshop. And when you were a student at Berkeley, you could go in for a dollar and listen to the matinee or the last set for a dollar. So you could sit along the wall and watch Elvin and for a dollar for the last set on Sunday afternoons for students at, at, uh, wow. at Berkeley. <laughs> wow. You know, I often think that, you know, like, I mean, we all know that John Coltrane is just so amazing, but... Uh, at the time when he came out, it must have been just so fresh. Like, well, yeah, it where was, did this it come was, from? You know, it was kind of uh, it was earth shattering to me because I mean, I'm so used to the, the I had grew up listening to West Coast jazz with Jerry Mulligan, and those guys were really a big influence on me. And then all of a sudden, here comes somebody with long, long solos. When you went to see him in the club, it was even longer. Sometimes they'd only play one or two tunes. Uh, toward the end, I was talking about the C60. He trained died in June of 67, so I was in Berkeley just a June of 67. And I remember being playing or, or in Old Orchard Beach, Maine when he died. But we used to see him go through his whole... Because when he recorded in the recordings, you went to the club to think you were going to hear that, but you never did. You heard the next thing he was working on. And he always used to say, he said, people want to come to see what I've done. They don't want to hear what I'm doing. Because he was constantly moving forward. He, wasn't, he didn't settle in one direction. And if you noticed with Coltrane, every time he changed record companies, he changed the direction of the music. If you look at his prestige period and you see him going through all of that sheets of sound, rapids, no, rapid notes and all of that, he changes, he goes to Atlantic Records, all of a sudden Atlantic, it's all different, Giant Steps, all of those changes and all that other stuff that he was doing. He leaves Atlantic Records, he goes with Impulse, and all of a sudden it becomes modal. And, you know, that long extended solo. So he just was constantly searching. So, so mm. every time you went to a club, you never, you never knew what to expect. You thought you were going to hear Giant Steps or even Love Supreme, and he was beyond all of that in the clubs. Right. And have you tried to model your practice well, on that sort of Well, not so much what, he, uh, what I did was I read how much he practiced, and so I just figured 
that's the way to achieve it. So I just set that as a, as a benchmark. You just practice every minute that you could. Right. I mean, that's because everybody knew that's what he was doing, and he was a big influence on all of us at that time. We were in our 20s, and, you know, he mm. was, I think he was about 10 to 15 years, maybe 15 years older than all of us. Right. So um, have there been different phases in what, how you've been, uh, like, how you've practiced over the years? Like, I mean, I know it yeah, seems like uh, listening I mean, is when huge. You transcription yeah, as, is... As younger, yeah, like, you, transcription was a big part of it when I first started because I played everything by ear. I took it off the recording and learned it by ear. Then all of a sudden it became theory-based because the chords and scales and all of that stuff which you got in, in the Berkeley. Everything was heavily theory-based. I was an arranging composition major, so lots of theory. And through the years, you ba I based my practicing on a lot of those different techniques. Now I don't do as much as I just play songs and try to play around changes. So I, I use the song form as a practice uh, model. So whatever you can do on the song form, you can instead of like just practicing individual bits and fragments of music, you can play it over the whole song form. Mm. So you mean you take an idea and you try to work it through? Yeah, I mean if I'm if I'm playing a tune, I could show you. I demonstrate. If I'm playing it, please do. Yeah, go for it. I mean, if I'm playing a tune like There Will Never Be Another You, and I want to play, and I've got the melody. That's the melody, so I can practice. My wife says she can't hear me. So all the things that you would basically practice in the practice room as a musician where you take fragments of music and play them chromatically and through different changes, I find that if you play it through the song form, it, it, it becomes actually what you're going to be doing at night on a gig. So you're actually right. playing in time the way you would actually improvise on a, in a live situation. I mean, there's a time for doing the other things. There's saxophone maintenance that we have to do, long tones and all these other, you know, odd things that uh, saxophone players play. Brass have their own thing. Pianists have their own thing. Attack, Hannon. You have to do all of these, these different things to kind of get the technique. But after a while, just to me, I like to just play the song for them. Right, right. And uh, so you still practice? Yeah, you know, I practice. Not as much as I did when I was a kid. Right, but right. I try to find as much, you know, a lot of time to practice. 
a couple of days if I can get, I, I can do a, a crash course in getting everything ready. When I was getting ready for this gig, I was trying to find some reads, and then I worked on some tone, and I worked on playing a bunch of different ballads. Then I worked on, you know, just uh, some chord changes, just played some songs. Cool. So uh, I was wondering, when did you first uh, uh, run into Elvin Jones? I was playing with Buddy Rich's band in Ronnie Scott's club in London, and Elvin came in to play with us. Elvin would come in many times to, to sit in with uh, Buddy's band. He always liked to sit in and play Count Basie charts. Uh, I was playing at Ronnie Scott's. I, I had met him before that, but he came in one night, and he, he saw me. He and his wife, Keiko, saw me, and he said, uh, Dave Liebman is leaving Elvin's band. Would you be interested in joining the band? I said, yeah, I would. I, Buddy had just broken the band up in London, giving everybody his notice saying he was going to get off the road, open a club in New York. So I was basically, that was the end of it for me. So uh, I moved back to Rochester for a while, and then I moved to Toronto. I came to Toronto. So a year went by because when I moved to Canada, Elvin lost all my contact information. And then the bass player, Gene Perlow, a good friend of mine who was playing bass with Elvin, came to Toronto. We were playing a session somewhere, and he said, you know, Elvin's been trying to get in touch with you for about a year trying to find out where I was, and I was living in Toronto. He didn't have my information. So he called me. I called him. We talked, and he said, uh, come to New York. I want you to join my band. And uh, I had just moved to Toronto in 1974. This was 1975, and I wasn't getting much work here. Um, it was hard to play when you first moved to Toronto because the union used to have a rule in Toronto. You couldn't work a steady job for six months. I had a baby on the way, sitting over there now. Louisa was, she was my daughter was, was uh, just about to be born, and uh, I, I couldn't work, so I was sneaking across the border, which was illegal at the time to try to work. I was going up to Aurelia and working up there with, a, with some bands, which was something you shouldn't do, but that was before computers, so they couldn't check to see where you were working. Right, so, right. you know, now you cross the border, and they just put you into Google, and they know, they know everything they know you're, you're doing, is, right? Yeah. But, and so I, uh, and then Elvin called me, and I said, well, you know what? I'm not doing much in Toronto. I might as well go on the road. So I went on the road with Elvin, and that was it. I joined him. I read at the Village Vanguard, just walked in cold on a Tuesday night, and oh, just started playing. I mean, they were teaching me the songs in the kitchen before we went on each set by ear. They had to pick up everything by ear because there was no music. And so one of the tunes we're going to play tonight, Antigua, is, is one of the tunes that, right, that they taught right. Frank Foster. Luckily, he had hired Frank Foster. Was Fra yeah, so Frank, Frank, he had hired Frank Foster to, to be there to help me learn the music. So Frank showed me all the tunes. Otherwise, right. I, would, I, would have, I mean, I knew the Coltrane tunes. They were playing Mr. PC, Naima, a few of the other Coltrane tunes. But the yeah. original stuff, I didn't know. Wow. That must have been uh, yeah, exciting. It was yeah, exciting and frightening at the and same frightening, time. Yeah. yeah. It was Roland Prince in the band Roland at that was, time? Roland Prince on was guitar? playing and guitar and David yeah. Williams on bass, yeah. Wow. That's heavy, man. <laughs> That's great. And um, so uh, with Elvin, were you trying to emulate John Coltrane? It's hard not say? to. Yeah. I tried not. I tried to, you know, I tried to press the sunny button and all those different, you know, <laughs> different directions. You, I, could get, I could change the direction, but a lot of the tunes were... You know, reminiscent of Train's music, so it's hard not to go down that pentatonic fourth uh, thing. You, you have to go there. Even Joe Farrell did that before me. Joe and Junior Cook, the guys who would play tenor before me, and Liebman and Grossman, they were playing more like Train than I did. They were using all of Train's, you know, kind of his giant steps, things that they had, the chromaticism that was going on. It's really hard not to play with that sound. And then when McCoy Tyner would come and play with us, it would be Elvin and McCoy, and Richard Davis sometimes, and, or... or um, uh, well, anyway, so at one point, it was like all three members of Coltrane's quartet, and you're standing out there. 
you're going to play like that. I mean, yeah. you're going to get, you're yeah. get, you know, the, it's just the, the vacuum brings you into it. Right. There's and nothing, how, how nothing wrong hang? with it either. <laughs> how was the hang with those guys? Well, they're, they're all great guys. I mean, yeah. they're all great people to talk to. There was no, you know, hostility. There's no ego trips on that band. That's one thing I liked about Elvin's band with him. Uh, there were some times when there were some of the sidemen could be difficult, but Jones was always a great, great guy, mm. as was Buddy Rich, too. Yeah, you know, Buddy had his temperament, but uh, but basically he was a you know he was a nice guy, basically. Mm-hmm. Right, and so uh, what brought you to Toronto? Well, uh, my first wife was from Canada, and so we moved here because I I knew it was the first major city. It was a major city I could work, where I didn't have to do a day work a day job, and I had played with most of the guys who were living in town in Vancouver. Because I used to play in Vancouver with Buddy Rich's band, so I would session with Don Thompson, and Bernie Sanensky, and Dave Field, and Dave McMurdo, and Terry Clark. We're all living in Vancouver, and then the next year they were all here. Every one of them moved here, so right. I knew all of these guys here. We would come through and work the Royal York, and then we'd go out and play at George's Spaghetti House afterwards. And I thought, you know, this would be a great town to move to because there's an industry here that's close to New York, but there's nothing in Rochester like, like w- what was happening here at the time. So I chose this, you know, we decided mm. to move here. And uh, so did you start recording w- when you moved to Canada? Is that when you started doing your first so recordings yeah, as a leader? Yeah, my first record date was with, uh, with Gene Perla, the bass player. He, hired, he got me the job on Elvin's band and gave me my first record date. Right. Where right. I used Don Thompson and, uh, well, and Gene and my brother Joe on, on it, yeah. Great. And then recording with Elvin, too. We were, Elvin's band was recording right. all the time, also. Yeah. And, uh, and you played also, uh, we had a, actually a question from the internet. Uh, what was it like playing with George McFetridge in and out of the Buddy Rich band? So well, George was a great... Later, and also back in that band. I right? knew George when he was a student at Berkeley, because he used to come out and see us with Buddy's band. And then George moved here from Edmonton. I believe he was living in Edmonton. And it was great, because George was a great writer. We got a chance to kind of play some of his great compositions and he knew, uh, you know, he helped, uh, you know, write uh, tunes for me and he also, you know, we played his stuff. He helped me with some of my compositions harmonically. He's a great player. I miss playing with George. You know, he's, he's in Vancouver now, I believe. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I saw him a few years back, but I haven't seen him in many years. Hmm. Great player. Yeah. That's great. Let's take a look at the, uh, the stream here, if we got any other ones here. Oh, there's the... Uh, it's all exciting. There. Um, <laughs> all right, so how about from the, uh, the crowd? Is there any uh, questions in the audience right now? Yeah? You want, here, say it into the mic. Is that cool? Yeah, you have to scream it out. I've been sitting in front of drummers so long I've become symbol-minded. I was just curious if there's any lessons in particular that you got from Elvin Jones. Yes, so the Elvin only told me two things when I went with his band. He said, you're not playing long enough, and you got to take your time to develop the solo. And he was right, because don't forget, I came from a big band. When you're a, sa- when you're a saxophone player in a big band, if you get 8 or 16 bars, you try to put everything in that 8 or 16 bars. It's like shotgun tenor. The band's up here, you're going to try to put everything in. Now you go with a small group where you only play four tunes a set in an hour and 15 minutes, 
you have to stretch and you have to make your solo kind of, you have to have, to have shape to it. It's got to be, have a beginning. It's got to have a middle section. It's got to be interesting. It's got to, everything's got to tie together. I wasn't getting the hang of it right off the bat. It was just basically I had to learn how to play longer, develop my solos, and take my time with the development. That's the only thing that he, that, you know, also the other thing that you learn is when you play with a drummer like Buddy Rich, who heavy on the bass drum, doom, 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 four on the floor, and heavy uh, hi-hat, so you hear this. The time is basically spoon-fed to you. It's pretty easy to kind of lock on top of that. Now you get with Elvin Jones where the time is triple it, triple it, triple it. And it could be maybe there's a hi-hat here, maybe not. Maybe it's up here. So it's up to you to kind of figure out where that time is going to be. And I always felt like, and Joe Farrell told me, he said, man, when, he goes, when you go with Elvin, he said, your time is really going to improve because it's like you have this big, long cavern of a bar. Each bar felt like it was just long, and you had so much you could do to it. Plus, we never really played anything really fast with Elvin. It was usually down to medium up. Occasionally, we would play fast tempos. So when the tunes are nice and medium, you've got more chance to kind of do things within the bar. I don't know if that ex helps. So I was wondering, um, you, te you know, teach a, see a lot of younger players. Um, what kind of advice do you give those younger players for, you know, like they're coming up in a very different scene and, yeah. and you've seen how it's transformed. So uh, what kind of advice do you give them to kind of... Well, I mean, I've always stressed repertoire, but that may not even be valid nowadays, you know, only because the repertoire that I learned certainly isn't valid. I mean, it's, we just played this tune. Now, how many people play old folks? I mean, this tune goes back to the 40s. If that, it probably goes back to the 30s. And a lot of these tunes come from the classic, you know, the Great American stand Standard Songbook. Uh, but certainly learning your instruments. I still stress repertoire. It's one, some of the tunes that, I mean, you go to New York, a lot of the younger guys are still playing great standards and some of the, some of the classic jazz tunes. Uh, but writing and certainly doubling for a saxophone player, writing, one of the things that's really you know, popular now is, of course, all the different time fields. The young lad that was playing piano here doing, he's gone now, but he played uh, take five. He's playing in five four. He's 13 years old. I couldn't tie my shoe when I was 13. He's playing in five four. So, you know, these odd time signatures or something, I'm still struggling with that. It's to to usually it's foreign to somebody of my, my era. Some people get by really well in it. Young guys like Chris Potter can deal in it. I'm just not that great at it. Mm. Time feel, and of course, s networking is the most important thing. If you want to work, you have to get out there and play. You can't sit in the room and expect the phone to ring. You have to get out there. That's why I like uh, where I teach. There's a lot of st you know, students are working in these schools, but they're getting together with their peers. They're playing with them. Those are the people that are going to hire you, or you will hire when you get out. Right. That happened to me when I was hiring for Buddy Rich's band. Where did I go? I went back to all my classmates that were in Berkeley because I knew what they could do. I knew they could c handle the job. I knew their habits, if they had them or didn't have them, so I could kind of trust them and rely on them. So if I hired somebody, I didn't have to next turn around and fire them. Yeah, it's kind of all about the hang, isn't it? Well, hanging is really important. It's, a, it's part of the whole scene, like yeah. getting, getting people to know what you can do. Yeah, yeah. And now, now that the, the clubs are kind of, there's less clubs than there used to be, I think it's a little more difficult for the students, but I feel like the schools have kind of come up as the new place yeah. for you to hang. Yeah, we, yeah. Need, we need more clubs. There's I mean, a great club here. We need people in the clubs, people going out. There's so many things that want to take your entertainment dollar. Mm -hmm. The first one being you want to sit at home and just watch movies. Totally. I'm like that sometimes. I don't yeah. like to go out all the time, but when I was younger, I did. But getting people and getting out to hear music, hear live music, is it's really important. Cool. Any other uh, questions in the audience? Uh, 
No pressure, of course. Anything? Could even be non-music related if you want. What are you cooking these days? <laughs> I never cook. My wife's the greatest cook, so she... Oh, okay, great. Um, and uh, great. So why don't we play another one? Sure. Yeah. Do you want to do... Uh, you step. Well, no, we already did. You stepped out of a dream. Night has a thousand eyes. All right, let's do it. <laughs> so this is a tune that was. Okay, this this tune is called "The Night Has a Thousand Eyes." It's a it's a great old standard tune. There's really a. If you go on YouTube and put in, there's a version of Harry Belafonte with Zoot Sims singing this. Because before Harry Belafonte was a calypso singer, he was a jazz singer working Birdland opposite Charlie Parker and doing some of those other clubs uh, until he found the, you know, the, 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 the Deo and all those tunes. He was a jazz singer. And there's a good version of him singing this on YouTube you can find. The Night is a Thousand Eyes. Thank you. 
Beautiful, beautiful. So uh, before we go, Pat, uh, I wanted to ask you, um, so wh what are you searching for now? What, what's the next uh, <laughs> Pat LaBarbera <laughs> album going to be? Or what's your I next project? I, uh, uh, actually, we're doing another one. I just did one with, uh, and it's not mine, but it's a cooperative thing that I had with my brother Joe, Don Thompson, and Neil Swainson. We just recorded a thing called, hold it, I'll just, uh, it'll come to me. We just did a tribute to Bill Evans. Uh, Distant Bells, it's called. We did it for a Japanese label. We recorded it here in Toronto. We're doing another one in October uh, for this uh, Japanese company. And uh, that's probably the next recording thing that I'm doing is October. If I do another one, it may be another ballads album. I don't know. I'm sometime, I've stopped writing for the last uh, few months. I haven't written anything. I haven't written anything in a while. I think last year was the last thing. I, when you're teaching, it's hard to kind of get to the, to the writing of it. But every once in a while, I get these bursts of energy, and I'll mm -hmm. maybe put pen something. Great. And uh, where are you playing coming up? It's... Uh uh, where am I playing? We're doing the Rochester Jazz Festival. I'm doing the Toronto Jazz Festival. I'm at the well. It's, I'm at the Rex with the Toronto, you know, their their jazz festival. I'm with John McLeod's big band. I'm playing with Humber, the Faculty Sextet here in uh, in Yorkville for the jazz festival. Then I go to Rochester to play the jazz festival in Rochester. Then I'm back. Then I'm in Buffalo working with Don Menza and doing a thing. And then. So some other small things around um, Barry and Alliston, little little jazz jazz things. I keep busy. All right. <laughs> Can they find that on your website? I don't have a website. I don't. No. Uh, I basically do Facebook and put the posts up on the. Fa I'll get around to a website one of these days. Okay. I guess you know. <laughs> when I retire from teaching and I have to go back to work playing, I'll probably end up getting a, a <laughs> website because I'll have to be out there, you know, beating the bushes for gigs. Anyway. Right. Well, Pat, thank you so much for Thanks, being my Nathan, guest today. This has been really fun. Thank you very much. Fun and to uh, do thank this. you for all being here. Uh, we're going to take a break and come back and play a few tunes for you. So uh, please stick around. All right. Thank you. All right.